This is a Main Hustle Media Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Jackie O and you're listening to Militantly Mixed. Yo, this is Rashani from the Single Simulcast. And when I'm not making you laugh or making up parody songs, I'm kicking back. Listening to Militantly Mixed. I would like to acknowledge that the Main Hustle Media podcasts are recorded on the traditional lands of the Karankawa, the Chumash, and the Tongva people, and I wish to pay my respects to the people of those nations, both past and present. Hey y'all, welcome to Militantly Mixed, the podcast about race and identity from the mixed race perspective. I am your host, Charmaine Fury, a.k.a. The Blasian Blurred, the busiest mixed race, bi-gendered, bisexual, polyamorous, atheist, comic book nerd, cat mom, and two-time Asian American Podcasters Association's Golden Crane award-winning podcaster in this podcasting game. This is episode 160, and I don't have too much to report uh, this week, only because last week I was recovering from food poisoning. So I really didn't get into too much last week while I was recovering. That being said, I did manage to upload two new videos in the Patreon for my $5 and up sponsors. I'm sorry that I've continued to be behind on that, but I'm trying to get caught up on everything. Um, But I managed to get two of those videos updated. I have two more to go, including this episode that you're about to hear. But hopefully by the time this airs, or at least within a day or two, I'll be able to get both of those up because they're partially finished. I just haven't been able to upload them yet. And I do have a friend coming from Mexico tomorrow, so my time is short. That is also why the quality of this intro is probably a little bit less than normal because I'm recording from my comic book shop and it's pretty loud right now. Sundays tend to be drag race day for some reason in my neighborhood, and I'm trying to record this in between runs. (laughs) We're going to try to make this as short as we can. So the two things that I do want to talk about, which is what I've been talking about a lot lately, is number one, the pod inbox. Podinbox.com slash militantly mixed is where you can go to leave a voicemail for the show. I have four different voicemail boxes um, for that right now. A general box, ask Charmaine anything, ask for advice. So if there's any support that you need within Mixness and you'd like to kick it to the community, I can play it on the show and hopefully we can get some um, community involvement. Or uh, what do you love most about being mixed? That being said, you can bring up any mixed related concept or or topic or anything by just recording a voicemail on um, the general box. And I'm hoping that after I come back from hiatus, so I am taking my hiatus in April, that I will start to do a weekly topic for the voicemail box so we can start engaging on a weekly basis with that. That way I'm not wasting the money for paying for that that site and hopefully we can get more involvement because that's what's missing right now for me for the show is we do have community involvement on the Facebook group somewhat, uh, but I would like there to be community involvement on the actual podcast, which is the whole reason why we're even on the Facebook group together in the first place. And for those of my listeners that aren't on Facebook who would like to engage in community, this would be a great way to start doing that. So go to podinbox.com slash militantly mixed and go ahead and leave me a voicemail there. 
I also have that link in the show notes, so you can always check the show notes to find out these links that I talk about during the intros. Secondly, since I have mentioned that I uploaded the videos for Patreon sponsors, if you would like to sponsor the show, you can go to patreon.com slash militantlymixed and sponsor the show as low as a dollar to as high as anything you wish, and there are different reward levels depending on what you choose, or you can choose to opt out of the reward levels as well if you would like, if you just want to support the show. And of course, if you support at the $5 a month or above, you get access to the video versions of the episodes, uh, starting with episode 142. So as I mentioned at the top of this intro, I just uploaded two episodes that I was behind on and I have two more to go. My next step is trying to get the blog versions of these up on the website, but I'm going to wait until after I come back from hiatus to, to get back on track with that kind of stuff. This is also a very emotional time for me just because of transitioning out of my comic book shop. Uh, I know I mentioned last week it was a logical decision and it's a decision that makes sense, but it is a bittersweet decision for me. So I'm still kind of grieving that I'm not going to be here in the shop all the time, even at the same time while being really excited about being able to focus finally on the podcast most of my time, almost full time. I'm really excited about that too. Before we get into today's episode, I I do want to acknowledge the illegal occupation that is happening in Ukraine as we speak. And I want to say at the top of this that I I don't believe myself to be very educated on what is happening over there. I what I know is kind of based off of the Winters on Fire documentary on, on Netflix from 2004. 15, 2014, the revolution that the Ukraine experienced back then. I was in awe of what the people did to get together to make a major change in their country. So if you haven't watched that documentary, I highly recommend it. If you have access to Netflix, it's called Winters on Fire. I know that some of that comes into play in what is happening with uh, Putin's occupation or invasion, I'm sorry, of Ukraine. But that being said, I'm trying to follow the news as much as I have time to, and I, I, I'm not coming from a place where I feel very confident and, and educated in what's happening, only to say that there is an illegal invasion from Russia into Ukraine happening right now. Innocent people are dying. Civilians are dying. They are attacking residential spaces, not military targets, I guess, necessarily, and people are evacuating their homes to try to get to Poland and other countries that are willing to accept them. So the, the way I'm approaching my acknowledgement of what's happening is that this is a humanitarian disaster and people's lives are at risk. And I, I want to acknowledge what is happening there. And um, I'm trying to share resources that I'm finding uh, or that I'm seeing in um, some of the activists that I know and organizers that are sharing vetted resources to support people in the Ukraine if you if you are inclined to or can. I, I shared some stuff in my stories the other day. I'm going to try to get those into the body of, of um, social media, my Instagram and things like that. But for now, I, I guess I just want to acknowledge what's happening over there. And with what little education I, I feel I have on it, all I see is that there are thousands upon thousands of people being displaced from their home because somebody, a dictator from another country, wants their resources. And um, obviously I don't support that and would just like to acknowledge that 
they're going through that. I imagine there's some cousins and listening here that are Ukrainian or have family back there too, that they're concerned. And my heart goes out to you as well. And hopefully we can find resources that we can share within community to, to support um, the humanitarian effort side of what's happening over there. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's what I know and what I feel like I, I, I can speak on with any kind of background knowledge, I guess. Um, in transitioning over to this episode today, uh, I, I feel like in this period, this three-month period of episodes, because that's how I record my show. I record three months' worth of episodes at a time, and then I take a month break, and then I record three months' worth of episodes that that, um, that so that I have time to edit them and put them forward. And in this period of three months, um, all these recordings that I did in January and early February, I, I feel like I've been really lucky with my guests this period, and today is no exception. My guest today is Anne Lou Keller. She is a mixed-race Chinese-American writer, editor, and teacher based in Seattle. And she's recently released her memoir, Heart Radical, A Search for Language, Love, and Belonging, in which she investigates her own mixed-race heritage, um, in particular with her Chinese side. On her website, she says, I wanted to understand how my path was tied to my mother tongue, as a young multiracial bilingual American woman, I traveled through China, the country of my mother's birth. Along the way, I tried on different roles, spiritual seeker, English teacher, student of Chinese, girlfriend, artist, and daughter, and continually asked myself, why am I called to make this journey? So we actually have been Facebook friends for quite a while, but we've never spoken directly one-on-one. -on -one. We are in a lot of the same mixed race groups, and we do engage in conversation through them. Um, but this is the first time we actually talked one-on-one. -on -one. It doesn't feel like that, though, but but that, <laughs> but that is the case. We we had a really great conversation, and I have a feeling Anne will be brought back um, to speak on some topics from time to time uh, because of how dynamic the conversation that we had. So stay tuned. I'm sure you're going to see her again in some form with Military Mix. And then I will also put a link in the show notes to how to get access to her book as well. But one thing I did want to highlight, we do talk about towards the end of this episode where she is going to be teaching a workshop, a writing workshop exclusively for mixed race people. It's about the mixed race experience. And she does this through the Hugo House Org. Uh, at the time that we recorded back in Jan January, she didn't have the details yet. She does have the details now. So I'm going to put all of that in the show notes. Two things. The workshop is 10 weeks on Wednesdays. In, over Zoom, so you can you can be anywhere as long as you're available for the time. It starts April 15th through June 13th or April 13th through June 15th. And the applications for that workshop open on March 15th. But the Hugo House offers a scholarship for people who um, are lower income. And so as long as they meet the income restrictions, they can apply for a scholarship. That application is available right now, and it's opened until March 14th. So if you want to consider applying to the scholarship um, or just applying for the workshop, I'm going to have both those links in the show notes as well. I really encourage you if you've been wanting to write or get involved in a workshop, but maybe you've been hesitating because it might not be uh, taught by a person of color or maybe 
it hasn't been speaking to you in terms of your mixedness or, or whatever, I think this is a great opportunity because it is a mixed race woman of color who is teaching a workshop on writing about your mixed race experience. I really, really encourage folks to, to try to join if they can, because uh, it sounds amazing. And I got really excited while she was talking to me about it. So I'll put all that information in the show notes so that you have access to it. And if you can, absolutely, please apply, because I think it might be an amazing opportunity. And I think that's it. So I managed to get like nearly 14 minutes without a drag car or, or what sounded like a drag car going down the street. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. Uh, so without further ado, please join me in welcoming our latest cousin to the Militantly Mixed family, Anne Lou Keller. Today, I am joined by Anne, who we have been in each other's circles, but we have not engaged yet. This is the first time we're we're engaging in person, but or I guess in video person. Yeah. Um, but we're in a bunch of different mixed groups together. We know some of the same people, and you have a you have a book, Heart Radical, out. So, oh, and you got a black cat. <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, so, why don't you introduce yourself to everybody, and let's get into it. All right. Uh, my name is Anne Liu Keller, and I live in Seattle, um, traditional unceded Duwamish land. And yes, I wrote a book called Heart Radical, A Search for Language, Love and Belonging. I worked on it for a period of practically 20 years oh, from wow. inception to publication. And it, it follows um, my journey in my 20s um, to China which is where my mom was born um, and just my my journey to reclaim and become more fluent in speaking Chinese mm. and then also just to um, understand my identity as a mixed race, mixed Chinese and white mm. American woman. Um, and then I also a few years ago started teaching some writing workshops specifically for mixed race people, uh, which have been super healing and transformative for myself and for my students. So I would love to talk about all of that and more with you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, yeah, I'm excited. I, I know, um, I, I, I remember you starting the promotion process of your book, like it was like it, it was starting to come up. I, I haven't had a chance to, to get it yet, but I've been seeing some of the reviews and it's most of it's like even if someone's ethnic background isn't the same, the, the way they're connecting to it is is very similar. It's just like, oh, you mean we all suffer this like grief because we don't have access to language and, you know, because we don't know how to talk about our mixed identity and things like that. It's um, I've been seeing saying that a lot in the response to your book. So 20 years, how, what is, what gets you started and what gets you 20 years into the game? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I, you know, I've always been a writer. I've always journaled, always loved to write. Um, but it wasn't until my first trip to China, which was in 1996, um, 
I decided to take a break from college and go to China to learn Chinese by immersion mm. uh, because uh, I grew up speaking it, speaking Chinese with my grandma and my mom, um, but I didn't really know how to read or write. So I was in the beginning classes um, because I wanted to learn to write characters, but my spoken Chinese was way more advanced than beginning. So it just made sense to, to go there. Um, so it was during that first trip that I started writing all the more. And then when I came back to finish college, that's when I started taking classes and um, focusing there. Um, and my second trip to China was in 99. And that's the focus of the book. And I went to teach English, um, amongst other things, and to travel. Um, but I also was writing. And at some point I knew, okay, I have a book in me. I don't know what it is. Um, eventually came back to the States, got my MFA, uh, was writing a lot about this period in China, um, mostly standalone essays, and then realized, okay, this is more of a memoir. Mm. But it just took a long time to grow the writing chops. And then also, you know, I was writing about things when they were relatively fresh. So it was the question of like, when does this story end? Just right. Going and going. And then my, you know, my reflection and my understanding of my identity in that whole period kept deepening. So I kept changing the book. And at some point I just was like, okay, this book is done. This needs to stop. I can't keep editing it. <laughs> But then, you know, I was sending it out and I was getting some bites, but it wasn't getting published. So then, of course, you know, you shelve the book, you tinker with it, you come back to it now and then. And so, yeah, so I did keep editing it and um, putting it through many, many versions. So, yeah, I wasn't working on it the whole 20 years, but it was living in me. And I knew I knew that I wanted to share it with people. You know, I didn't want it to die on the shelf. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it, like living in you. Because I feel like there's these two separate stories that I've been, you know, that I've had in my head for years. Um, all are connected to the way I identify and, and the way I no longer identify. And I've just not put it down. For some mm -hmm. reason, I still think one day it just manifests and it's just like, there it's going to be. <laughs> but, um, you know, I know that it's actually going to take the work to get it done. So it's it's amazing that you did that and and stayed committed to it throughout yeah like I, I I've said before if I started writing this book today it would be a very different book right you know and I I have more of an an understanding and analysis of my mixed race identity now that I didn't when I started writing the book and the book was so much more focused on my time in China but like in the decades since then of course I've interrogated my identity all the more through the lens of how I exist in America. So there's so much more writing that I'm doing now about my mixed race identity um, more overtly that I wasn't so much in the book. You know, that's, that was there because it right. was a part of me, but it was more focused than on reclaiming Chinese, right? Did that make the editing process difficult because you're reading a different version of you while editing and things and being like, it's not like that anymore, but also trying to force yourself to leave it as part of the journey. Was that difficult? Yes, very <laughs> much so. And yeah, um, 
because then, I, yeah, you just want to keep changing it and deepening your reflection. And again, at some point, I needed to just freeze it and stop changing it. So part of what I did to do that um, was I changed it all to present tense. Mm. And already some of the chapters were present tense. And I felt like the writing was more vivid because it forced me to stay in the scene in the moment mm. more. But by doing that, I also um, was able to just cut that impulse to keep changing my reflection from the older me. And I was still able to weave in reflection, but it was coming more from this hybrid place of like what I knew then informed a little bit by what I know now. Mm. Yeah. When, when, if at all, like while you were in these, these multiple trips back to China to connect, did you start to feel like it was laying in place of like who you were as it related to your Chinese identity versus who you were as it related to your American? Yeah. It was really, so on the first trip when I was speaking Chinese again and, you know, just real basic Chinese, but still speaking it every day. And then one night I started to dream in Chinese Oh, and I was like, neat. okay, that was when I knew it was <laughs> on this deep unconscious level of, you know, a part of me that I had lost that was still there and accessible and coming back. So that was that first kind of aha feeling of deep ancestral connection, you know, and there were a lot of encounters I had with locals that just felt really magical like the country was welcoming me like strangers, you know, taking me in kind of situations as a woman traveling alone um, and being in more remote areas at the time in the parts of Western China and also um, in, in kind of the borderlands with Tibet. But on my second trip, when I really lived there for several years, and did more of a deep dive into the language and culture. That was when all of the paradox and irony of like, oh, I am so American. I'm so not Chinese and nobody sees me as Chinese. Those and, I, <laughs> yeah, and I knew that on the first trip as a traveler, like people just see your otherness, right? So people saw me as this in between Westerner, but not Chinese like them, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But the second trip is when it really became more difficult because here I was trying to enter the culture and trying to, you know, live like a local as much as possible. But that experience of going out into the street and being stared at 24 seven and, you know, just not just stare, but like gawked and talked about. Right. Uh, never went away. And so it just, I just grew more resentful of it because. Was it immediately noticeable? Like every time you went in? Pretty much. Um, I think like in the nighttime when people couldn't see me as well, or if I'm like sliding into the back of a cab and I, they just hear me first, mm -hmm. then they might not notice. Um, and then I was dating a Chinese man at the time. And he, I mean, he also looked unusual. He wasn't your typical Chinese mm. man either. So um, when we were together, people were always talking about us like, you know, is she a foreigner or a local or Chinese? Is he a man or a woman? Like, so oh, wow. we were just sort of in our little bubble, which helped me feel more protected. Mm. But um, 
but yeah, like compared to Chinese women, I'm larger. I'm, you know, obviously more Western. And then I would tell them, you know, I'm mixed race and they would be like, oh, I, you know, then they would all click for them. But how, how is that handled? Like, is it like, oh, okay. So are they viewing you more than even though they're understanding your mix as more American or are they viewing you as one of us with a little bit of something else? Yeah, both. But I would say more than anything, they're viewing me as American, mm -hmm. right? As how I'm different. Um, but then there would be a little bit of like, oh, you're one of us. Like, you can take the Chinese out of China, but or whatever that phrase is, they would apply right. it. Yeah. But but more than anything, I think they they viewed me as other but accessible because accessible I other. Actually, yeah. that's um yeah, that's interesting because I know on my Japanese side, I I never feel less Japanese than when I'm around Japanese people. Right. <laughs> yeah, and that's different feeling than like. Um, like the American black, white, biracial person who says like, I'm not black enough to be black and not white enough to be white. Or I think any mixed race biracial person would feel this way. Um, for me, triracial who doesn't identify with the whiteness or really doesn't really have access to it, but only really has access to the black and Japanese-ness. I never felt like not black enough necessarily. Mm -hmm. I just wished I looked a little more obviously black because that was my cultural immersion. Mm -hmm. But when I'm around Japanese people and I'd be like, you know, what that she and um it would be just like, huh? You know, like it didn't make it didn't connect at all. So there's never moments in which like I feel even um like applauded for my effort to try to connect. Not that mm -hmm. I necessarily need it, but I see like a blonde haired, blue eyed person who goes to Japan to teach English mm -hmm. being like applauded for their effort mm -hmm. to learn Japanese, to immerse. And here I am like a mixed Japanese and it's like, yeah, but foreign. Um, so it's it's one of those things that I I, I still struggle with and I, I need to have my Japan solo experience to, to see what the other part of that is. Mm -hmm. But I'm curious about it like for you because there there is some crossover when it comes to like mixed Asian identity across East yeah. Asia in particular, the way they do have sort of a separation or a hierarchy in terms of like your access to Asianness. Right. Definitely. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I think too, it like if you're traveling alone versus with other people, it's a different kind of access you have too. in some ways, like people I think are more willing to talk to you and connect if you're alone. Um, but if that's what I found, like, but if you're with another person, then, you know, it's easier to push, just not, not go there, not talk to you. So like, let's say you're with a person that, that is Chinese from China, then you're now, you don't need to be accessed because they can engage with a person that's more familiar. There's that. And then also, for example, when I, I went to Taiwan um, two years ago for the first time with um, my son and also with my ex-husband and he's white and my son is, you know, blonde and blue eyed. Um, and because I was with them, then I think people just see me more in that bubble of like white American and, you know, but if I was traveling alone, I feel like people are much more apt to talk to me and, and I'm more apt to speak to and come out of that. I see bubble myself. That's interesting. So you, when you were with your, your white 
ex-partner, you were less inclined to like reveal your Chineseness? It's not that, but it's just that I didn't have as many opportunities, you mm -hmm. know, because I'm like, I'm ordering food for us and that kind of thing, buying us tickets. Mm -hmm. But I myself am not in that open space of just having the time and freedom to talk to people and let the, the day, you know, unwind as it might when I was alone, you know, then I would find myself in these situations where I would spend an afternoon with somebody or, you know, be much more open to meeting people. I see. Um, and then what about the, the white side too? Do you feel the same kind of disconnect when you're, when you're here in the country you're born in versus when you're in China in terms of your whiteness? Well, like definitely if I'm with my, you know, depending on which side of the family I'm with, if I'm with my Chinese side, then it's my white American side that sticks out and that mm. I feel like separates me. And then if I'm with my white American family, it's the opposite. You know, my sister and I are the the Chinese cousins, although we haven't really had family, gone to family reunions in a long time. In Seattle, you know, I grew up um, with a lot of other Chinese kids, like friends of my parents. Um, they had a lot of potluck group. They had a potluck group that were the, there was a lot of um, Chinese families and some mixed Chinese and white families. So I did grow up with other mixed kids around me. It was kind of a typical, or maybe not so typical, I guess, assimilation story where, you know, Seattle is very white and the, the more that I started to go to school, the more my friends became increasingly white. My classmates were mostly white. And then when I went to middle school and high school, you know, there, there wasn't a large Asian population and it was more, uh, the racial lines were more divided around black and white. And, you know, I identified more with the white kids, you know, and that was like, that was the culture that I saw I came from when along this binary and so yeah then it wasn't till going to college till that I started studying Chinese again and asking questions about Asian American identity and consciously you know trying to understand that part of myself from a more mm -hmm. political public place as opposed to just this is a intimate familial thing of right. about food and language and right family did you find when you started to take Chinese in school that other like Ch American born Chinese or mixed Chinese Americans were kind of at a disadvantage in language differently than like someone who came from entirely the outside? You mean in, in learning Chinese or in? Yeah, just the access point. So one of the experiences I had, because um, like I have this very similar uh, uh, American immersion um, type of situation, which my Japanese grandma didn't teach us much mostly because she was told by the military not to. And, you mm -hmm. know, so she had this kind of fear of deportation, even though she was an American citizen. And assimilation is just generally the the Japanese move, you know, <laughs> like whenever yeah. they go someplace. And so whenever I would try to really access Japanese-ness, it would be kind of like, but but you're American. Like, why, why do you want to do this? So by the time mm -hmm. I start taking Japanese class in college, well, first of all, my teacher told me, he said, raise your hand if you speak Japanese or any Japanese at home. And like seven of us raised our hand. And 
some of us were full Japanese and some were like mixed Japanese. And he goes, all of you are going to fail my class. So that's like how he started wow. us out where he was like, I'm already separating you from, from the rest of the thing. And mm -hmm. it, it was true. Like I got a C in that class, which was like the war, like I talk about the Asian F, you know, it was just like, it was just mm -hmm. so damaging to not get that. But mostly because he had a different dialect than the dialect that I would have expected to learn, which is more like a Tokyo based Japanese. And right. um, so any pronunciation I already had, he was like, no, that's not uh, the Japanese I'm teaching. Um, but then also, I feel like there was like this resentment, I guess, towards us for not being Japanese from Japan. Um, and so like it started off that way. I've yeah. had other classes since then, too, where there was all, uh, already kind of like a, uh, you know, like, it's cute that you want to access this. But I don't know if that's something that's real more typically a Japanese thing or if that if that also carries over into other mm. Asian cultures um, or if you felt like I'm finally connecting or if there was just like this division because you had a little bit of access, but not full access to Chinese. Interesting. Yeah, I don't feel like I had that same experience. I mean. I do feel lucky that my mom was not one of those classic, you know, immigrant story where they don't want their kid to speak their native language. Um, so she really wanted it, my sister and I too, and spoke to us and um, encouraged awesome. that. Um, and then, but I do relate to what you said about like different accents. So I, my mom, you know, although she was born on the mainland, she, um, you know, fled the communists with the Nationalist Party to Hong Kong and then Taiwan. So she she came of age in Taiwan. So my accent that I learned is more, you know, Mandarin spoken by Thai, by people in Taiwan. I see. Um, so yeah, I would get corrected when I was in China um, by those speaking in the classic like Beijing dialect. Um, but then later, I, after I came back from China, I went to the, the UW and studied um, actually audited Chinese for um, a year or two. And my teacher was also from Taiwan. So in that sense, I when I went to Taiwan this couple years ago, it did feel even more like a homecoming because people mm. understood me, my accent. It was the, the correct right. way to speak as opposed to I see. the wrong way to speak. Yeah, I see. That's interesting, too, because it's almost like adapting a culture that you're kind of a member of versus since your mother did. Um, like, was that would you would you consider her a refugee from from mainland? China? I I would, although, you know, it's really only been in recent years that I've been used that word and said, okay. yeah, that applies to that wave of immigrants. Right. Which is even a different type of immigrant story, too, because now she has multiple levels of leaving home mm -hmm. in in versus like just going direct here from where she grew up to, to right. the states so that yeah so i think that is a different type of layer a bunch of different layers of of the immigrant tale when you when you actually settle so related to you and your sister you both present very similarly like this or do you as one of you look more like one than the other were you compared a lot growing up I think we look pretty similar. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Pretty similar mix. And so. when you're in the States, mm -hmm. how often are you misidentified as solely white or solely Asian? It's one of those questions where even to this day in my mid forties, like I don't always know how people see me. Right. Like I grew up thinking, Oh, you know, of course people see me as Asian. And then, 
you know, and then sometimes I'll be surprised when somebody um, might, you know, says like I'm white passing or, you know, mm-hmm. like I, I don't even know. It's so weird because I think depending on how trained someone's eye is to mm-hmm. see mixedness, they might miss things, but, and it might depend too, like on, you know, if my hair is yeah. going gray or <laughs> that kind of thing. Well, I think it's, I think it's, especially during, throughout doing this show uh, in particular with Wasians is the amount of times I'm surprised that people see white at all outside of like, okay, maybe our eyes are slightly bigger, mm-hmm. you know, than, than someone monoracially, whatever Asian that we come from. Right. So, yeah. so many times I get on this video and the person said, or, or they've emailed me in advance and told me they're white passing or something like that. And then I'm like, okay, well, we can talk about that dynamic. And then they get on the screen and I'm like, um, oh, shoot, I have the wrong notes. Like, <laughs> I'm waiting for this white passing Asian. I'm looking at a person who's clearly like the Asian is strong in them. Yeah. Um, and the amount of times that people have told me on the show, like, that they get misidentified as solely white far more often than solely Asian. When to me, I like, I look at you and I, I, I feel like I can tell that you're Asian, but I feel like the the Chinese is strong in you. Like I can yeah. see it. I I don't feel like I could identify what kind of white. Like if it's solely a yeah. glow or if it's Eastern blood, you know, like all the different places in which whiteness appears. I don't feel like I could identify that, and yet I could feel like this person is probably a mix of East Asian. Yeah, you know, and whatever that ends up meaning. But it's it always surprises me on this show how often someone tells me they're seen yeah. more often as white or how often they discover that they've been seen as white all along and they didn't mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why I asked. Cause I'm at this point, it's like a, s- a sociology <laughs> experiment of just like how many Asians actually appear white to white people. If like white, I guess if there's, if that person is centering whiteness generally, mm-hmm. is that why they see you as white versus seeing you as Asian or, and or mixed? Right. Or like in high school, you know, where, again, it was so binary the way we talked about race. And Mm -hmm. so I, you know, like my black classmates, I don't know how much they saw me as Asian or Mm -hmm. white. Um, I, but yeah, I, I think most people do see me as Asian, but, um, again, like you said, there's just surprises. You just never know. And of course in China, it's different. Do you investigate the whatever the origin of your whiteness is as much as you investigate your Chinese origin? I haven't. I mean, I know that um, so my my father's side of the family is large um, and they've done a lot of um, genealogical research Mm -hmm. and they're very connected. And so I feel like there's this part of me that trusts that that side is well documented and that I, I do want to explore it more, you know, with when I have more time. But there was always this part, you know, my Chinese side was just shrouded in so much more secrecy, mm-hmm. trauma, mm-hmm. silence, unknowns, you know, like I can't trace back my ancestors more than a couple generations. Like mm-hmm. I, I know like the name of one great grandmother, but like nothing beyond that. Mm-hmm. And so it just felt like and obviously, you know, growing up amidst whiteness, too, that just felt like the absence in me that needed to be filled more. Absolutely. Yeah, that makes sense to me, too. Yeah. But I do know my white side comes from, like, you know, the former, like, Czech, what's now the Czech Republic, okay. Germanic, you know, mm-hmm. big, sturdy thighs and 
steins of beer. <laughs> just, that's, those are my roots on that side. It's funny too, like when you're trying to identify your your own body too, and just like you know, this part of me is black, this part of me is Asian, this part of me is what. Like where where in the world we come from with the people that look like us, you know, um, yeah, what body types that they have. I I know that there are times I find myself saying like I have big big Asian calves or you mm. know something like that, which I feel is one of those ways of like me connecting to someone else, you know if. If they're around, it's like, you got big Asian calves. I got big Asian calves. See how we're similar, even though we're different, right. you know. And like one of those things that you can say about yourself, but you probably shouldn't say to someone else, right? <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like wait for someone to, to be self-deprecating and then be like, me too. But like, I yeah. like my big Asian calves. So like for me, it's fine. Um, but also it's like one of the places where I'm trying to find it because I think it is harder to identify um, certainly what Asian I have, but even mm -hmm. identifying me as an Asian, I think is um, yeah. a little bit more difficult uh, yeah. unless they think I'm Filipino. Which mm. That happens more often than, than not, I guess. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's just, just curious about how that, how that translates for you. Cause like, honestly, and I, I don't mean it to hide the rest, but like when I, when I see pictures of you, I, I'm like, yeah, she's obviously a mixed Asian, like a yeah. mix where where I'm centering the Asian part of whatever your mix is versus like being able to look at you and be like, that is clearly a Czech Asian, <laughs> you know, like I wouldn't <laughs> like I didn't have that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And back to the body part thing. I mean, definitely in China, you know, most Chinese women are very petite and small. So that was another part mm -hmm. of me that felt very but even that depends American. on where they come from right because like there's parts of china where the body types are a lot True. different i mean that's how we met we randomly have these massive uh basketball players in the nba because their people come from the mountains <laughs> that's true yeah the northerners may perhaps you have taller people but mm -hmm. but generally speaking like yeah you know, like you. the size um small in the states is like extra extra large sizing right. in China right yeah. the amount of times I've tried to order something that I love from Asia only to find out that extra large does not mean what it means here <laughs> right yeah yeah that's rough um and just another way in which like because I imagine even American-born monoracial Chinese who are used to the food that we have here is part of the reason why they can tend to be bigger sometimes than than like mm -hmm. back home and um and just like how much of a separation and disconnect that that makes you feel um, mm -hmm. from your cultures and things. Mm -hmm. uh, so getting back into your writing, besides the book, you said you did a lot of more like sort of singular essay type of things. Were you doing those just yourself and then finding ways of publication? Or were, was that just something that you were doing like as a career that was leading you into trying to finish out your book as well? Um, both. So, yeah, I'm always free writing on my own. Um, and with my students. So in my creative writing classes, a lot of them are really generative. And so we write from prompts together. Mm. And, um, you know, a lot of times, especially in my classes for women of color, Asian American women, or Asian American people in general, but it was mostly women um, and mixed race people, then obviously were interrogating race, interrogating whiteness, um, more so than in my other classes. Um, and so I was 
just accumulating all of these free rights, all of these fragments. And um, I knew, you know, I knew I wanted uh, interrogating whiteness, interrogating my own, you know, anti-blackness and bias and just inherited stuff. And, but still really scared to publish some of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And because I didn't have a lot of, I didn't have men a lot of mentorship from other writers of color or um, readers to like show things to and feel a sense of safety. Like if I mess up, like they can call me out on it. You know, a lot of my writing group members were still white for a long time and just mm. writing from a mixed race identity place of identity. Um, I just wasn't getting, you know, it just didn't feel like I had the readers I needed to help me grow in those ways. And so it really wasn't until I did a residency with um, Seventh Wave, which is um, a journal, amazing journal that publishes so many wonderful writers of color. And, um, and they also do a lot of community outreach and, and residencies. So right before the pandemic hit, um, I was in this, you know, residency on Bainbridge Island. And um, I had committed to writing, let's see, what was the theme? Um, actionable storytelling was the theme. And so I had committed to writing um, an essay about, you know, growing up mixed race in the black and white binary and, and really also looking at a lot of my experiences with anti-blackness and, and in high school and, you know, just, just all of those being on the receiving and delivering end of microaggressions all of those experiences we, you know, tally and accumulate in our bodies. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, I stayed silent in that moment when I should have, or, oh, mm -hmm. I totally put my foot in my mouth and, you know, said something mm -hmm. racist. And so I was just committed to exposing that on the page and also terrified of it because it's like, okay, who's my audience? Am I causing more harm in some ways by putting this stuff out there than, than not? Um, but I, I had some great editors who pushed me on stuff and I had just the deadline. And I remember it, it turned out to be this super long piece. And I remember like, I never felt so anxious and shameful and nervous about putting something out there, like sweating, you know, putting it off, procrastinating mm -hmm. um, so much shame, you know? Mm -hmm. And then of course i when I did, of course, like the most of the reactions I got were like of resonance, right? Like other, especially from other mixed Asian and white people, like who also have trouble locating themselves and the conversation talking about race. Um, so it's an ongoing process, but that was like, that piece was called Miseducated um, Encounters with Blackness and Whiteness. And that was kind of a big one for me. And then Another more recent essay is after teaching some of these uh, writing workshops for mixed race people, I wrote uh, an essay called Shapeshifting, Finding the We in Mixed Race Experiences. And that one was really, you know, at core about how without having been in a space dedicated to mixed race people talking about race, I never would have been able to write an essay and use we, you know, us mixed race people never mm. would have felt that confidence to mm. like be able to name this sort of this commonality that 
I now feel that, you know, many mixed race people share Mm -hmm. despite all our differences. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's evolving and I still feel uh, in some ways, like very, like a baby, you know, when we're talking about race and, but I'm so relieved to finally not feel so afraid to be a part of the conversation publicly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you feel that you can continue to say we from, from going forward or is it still a pause every time you, you try it? I think it's a very tentative we, right. Mm -hmm. And it's a we that I can access more in writing when I have time to edit and think about it because Mm -hmm. otherwise I'm, you know, I'm so aware of how, different the mixed race experience too is mm-hmm. depending on what mix you are and what your skin color is or where you grew up or what generation right yeah. but mo- the more I read the more I talk to people the more I hear from people the more I confident I can feel in just you know in just naming some of the very abstract and yet important layers of connection like just this very point itself is that we, most of us, have not grown up with spaces where, mm-hmm. you know, racially, especially culturally, where we feel, you know, this innate sense of belonging. Yeah. Right? That's unspoken. Um, and then shape shifting, of course, and, you know, having family members who come from different cultures. I can name certain layers that do seem to apply to, to most of us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I think, I think there, I I think even in the process of me doing the show, it took me a couple months in the beginning, but there, it got to a period where I realized there was a lot more crossover between any mixed person, regardless of what we were mixed with, just in terms like experience wise, I guess, Mm -hmm. versus necessarily someone of my same mix, because even within triracial black, white and Japanese people, they could be more Japanese or or have more access to Japanese. They could be more black or have more access to blackness. They could be more white and have more access to whiteness. So like it's just the fact that we are othered in any position that we're in or any situation that we're in or Mm -hmm. that, um, we have different access levels to things that is is like, that's the stuff. That's Mm -hmm. the part that joins us as a community of mixed people Mm -hmm. versus, you know, mixed means fill in the blank, you know, whatever, whatever that, that ends up being. I'm glad though, now that we're able to have these conversations, because as we were talking about before we hit record, when I started my show, we weren't, there wasn't a whole lot of mixed race for us, by us, about us created content. Mm-hmm. Most of the things that address anything about mixedness was written by people outside of outside of mixedness looking in. Mm-hmm. And so now that there are so many different platforms and so many different writers and so many different podcasters and, and video content creators, like we're we're out there more often. People are saying, mm-hmm. oh, actually, I probably know way more mixed people than I ever thought. And, and how am I mm-hmm. contributing to them behaving as a particular, this is how, this is the race I see you as, or this is the culture I see you as mm-hmm. just because I'm not seeing them mm-hmm. as their whole picture, I think is, is starting to become more obvious too, even with monoracial people. So yeah, um, I'm glad we're out there doing the work. To <laughs> show yeah, how many years now have you done this podcast? Um, I'm going to be, I'm closing in on four. Um, 
So I, yeah, when I started, there was a, a number of dead podcasts before me. So about 12 mm -hmm. or so podcasts that hadn't released an episode in at least a year. And of those barely had made it to six episodes, most of them. Um, and so I, I was starting it thinking like, yeah, nobody wants this, but I got time. <laughs> you know, like, I, I, I just wanted to collect mixed people. So it was more selfish endeavor than anything. Uh, it just happened to hit at, at, at such a time in which people were ready to, I think, to start talking about it or yeah. seeing that other people were talking about it made them talk about it. Yeah. Um, and then and then I just started seeing other content creators pop up and, you know, try to engage with them, too. And then we were all connecting and we, I had to go through the path of like uh, the first pass with a lot of people were, well, you have your thing. I have my thing. Let's grow our audience separately. And now mm -hmm. we're in this time period of like, oh, our things are we could cross over. So mm -hmm. like it took this like period of figuring out how can we connect as a community? I think the community build part took a lot longer than the, mm -hmm. I just want to talk about mixedness mm -hmm. thing when I was, when I was starting, or at yes. least that's been my experience in book form though. I mean, I have a couple of academic books from like Naomi Zach, like from way back and things. And, yeah. and then I just, you know, no narrative books until I found mostly white with Alison Hart. That was mm -hmm. the first time I read a book where it was like clearly written about mixed people. Mm -hmm through the lens of a mixed person who was going through it, you know, mm -hmm. um, that was the very first book. And that was in my second year of, of doing the show. And then since mm -hmm. then, you know, I've met Teresa Stovall and I've met you now. And, you know, there's been a number of other people mm -hmm. that have been putting together books where it's like, it's half memoir and half just like, mm -hmm. you don't know what this is like <laughs> for mm -hmm. mixed people, you know, yeah, so. there's, I mean, there's more and more books out there, but you still really have to be seeking them out, mm -hmm. you know, and also, of course, some are directly interrogating the mixed experience, mm -hmm. barely at all, right? Mm -hmm. um, I know, I've, I feel like one of my next projects is I really want to edit an anthology of, of mixed race writers, because for my classes, I pull from all oh, over yeah. the internet and anthologies and this and that, but um there still feels like a lack of, you know, availability. Maybe there's, there's a book called half and half. There's another, you know, there's, mm -hmm. there's ones that have, exist, but they come out every what, five, 10 years. Yeah. I think we need more for sure. And it's enough too to like try uh, a lot of the ones that come out, like I, because of my schedule, I'm so busy. I'm mostly audiobook now. Like that is the way that I access most of my books. And in most cases, the mixed race books I've been having access to or self-published and they don't have an audio component yet. And mm. so then it comes like, okay, it's on my shelf. It's here for when I have the time, you know, so I end up reading chunks of books and then like a year goes by and I'm like, oh yeah, I never finished that. And I got to pick it back up. Or if I go mm. on vacation, I'll take it with me. So even that is like a level of separation too for, um, <laughs> uh, for someone, you know, like me, like up until recently I had a full-time job, a part-time job, four podcasts, and I was building my comic book shop. Now it's the comic book shop, the four podcasts, and I'm building a different thing. You know, like, so it's just like, no matter what I do, uh, there ends up being a barrier to accessing the written side right. of Mixnet, or unless I can get access to it as a, as an audiobook. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then some, some of the essays you see out there, oftentimes, you know, stay at that level of like, I'm not this and I'm not that. Yeah. And I don't quite belong. Or maybe yeah. 
I'm both, you know, so like a very important level of identity making, mm -hmm. but there's so many, so much further to go. Right. Like that's a pathway on the, you know, that's like a stop on the path early on, I think is when we're kind of, I'm not enough of, or, and then it's growing into I'm enough of I'm both. And then, it, mm -hmm. or I'm all of the things. And then it becomes a thing of like, I actually don't care what you think, <laughs> uh -huh. but I need, I need that. That's where I'm at. I'm in that part of the, of the content where it's just like, you're just out here being unapologetically mixed. You are what you are. You can be fluid in it. You don't have to be fluid in it. Like whatever uh -huh. the thing exists in the binary or not exists in the binary. Like that's the stuff that I'm, I'm craving now of, of people who, um, you know, I'm, I'm here to be an auntie or an eld, you know, I mean, a middle-aged elder, but still I'm, I'm an elder in the game, I guess the, you know, content creation game to, to help the people that are in that level. But now I want mm -hmm. to get the content that's at my level, which is like, yeah, I'm mixed. So I'm much they want so much. Yeah. yeah. And that's harder, I think to find right now. Yeah. Like for me, you know, and for a lot of Asian and white or mixed with white people like some and who grew up in amidst a lot of whiteness you know I think that first level is often like okay I'm gonna reclaim the Chinese I'm gonna claim that I'm a woman of color I'm gonna you know proudly claim all of that but then like for me part of the journey is like oh I need to really interrogate my whiteness and my privilege and my you know more loudly because I think that's still something that you know, white people, of course, are uncomfortable doing. And so I can lean into that space a little bit more sometimes, mm -hmm. even though it's still very uncomfortable. Um, I feel this obligation to, to still name it, right? Yeah, even though right. I still, you know, in my, let's say in my bio, I say I'm a mixed race um, Chinese American woman, right? Like I usually, that's how I name my identity. I don't say I'm mixed Chinese and white, but I still... But then I push up against that. I'm like, why don't I? In the same way that like you might ask a white person, like, why don't white people put in their bio? I'm yeah. a white person, yeah, you yeah, know? That, yeah, that kind of stuff. And I know why I don't, you know? And it's not an easy answer, but it's like, yeah, because like the, the way I'm seen, but also the way I know myself is predominantly as mixed Chinese. Like yeah. it's not that whiteness. But I also feel like I do a disservice to to everyone if I don't name that whiteness and and like call it out and ask what is yeah. it I mean I fair and also claiming how you hierarchically identify I think is also fair. like I think there's room for all of us like there's right. room for the ones that are going to be like I'm you know Chinese and white American boom like I think there's mm -hmm. a place for that person in the same way there's a place for you claiming mixed Chinese American I, I struggle with it in terms of naming whiteness I specifically say British even though British is not a white race it is mm -hmm. but it is a, a white identity it's a very mm -hmm. specific type of whiteness so rather than me say my Nana is from England or mm -hmm. I'm English uh, that could mean anything here in the States. That could be mean that you've been here since the 1700s as, you know, and stuff like mm -hmm. that. But in my case, my Englishness comes from a British woman. Mm -hmm. So like I name if I name my whiteness, which I don't always either, mm -hmm. um, then I do that. I do it like that. I say British. If I'm being really specific, I'll tell people hierarchically I'm black, Japanese and 
white British mm-hmm. American. I don't like to even say American. Like American doesn't fit for me because I, I never feel less American than I am when I'm here in America. The only time I'm aware of my Americanness is when I travel outside of the country. Right. Because it's the way other people receive me. They hear my accent, American. And my mm-hmm. instant reaction is like, nope, yeah, nope, yes, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, like, because I don't, I realize I don't have that identity mm-hmm. um, very prominently. I know it's there. I know it's definitely influences my personality. I know mm-hmm. that I have American behaviors when I'm going to, you know, other countries. And yet it's just not the center of my identity. So I think that's fair. Like it's, it's okay. No, I agree. I think it's, it's fluid, right? It's Mm -hmm. depending on what is the context in which you're, you're introducing yourself and talking about yourself. So, so yeah, if I'm like, if the context is a class unpacking whiteness and race, then of course I'm going to name that. Mm -hmm. But if the context is like, you know, how I publicly primarily know myself and, Mm -hmm. and identify, then I don't feel like I have to put that in my bio, right? Right. But it it does push up against like the, you know, the conversations we have around whiteness and like kind of the the cop out sometimes if if white people don't want to claim name that mm. as opposed to being like I'm German American or I'm you know mm-hmm. it's a paradox because I feel like yeah we all at least not we all know, but most of us in this conversation know race is a construct and we need to like like get away more from talking about, you know, obviously race as like this fixed scientific thing mm-hmm. versus culture and the culture you're raised into and, and the culture that you know and, mm-hmm. and embrace. Um, but, but yeah, the more we talk about, you know, the more that like, it just, these conversations, I think, just open up so much in like deconstructing conversations about deconstructing race. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, well, I also think like identity, I mean, identity is so complex. Like I have a different political identity than I have a necessarily a cultural identity, although they're similar, but there mm-hmm. are reasons the way I identify politically versus culturally are the motivations behind them are different, right? right. Um, the way that I identify on the show is sometimes very different depending on who my guest is. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a me attempting to make some people feel more comfortable. If I get the impression that they don't feel very comfortable in their mixedness, you know, I might, yeah. how I vocalize my identity for right. them. And I don't think it takes anything away from how I identify, but it does, it opens up a new thing of like, Oh, okay. There's something I've got to work on. Let's put that, you know, put that down on the list of things Mm -hmm. that interrogate. And, and then sometimes just like something happens on the show and it's just like, ah, I didn't even know I had that, you know, like I didn't even know I had to deal with that one. So, you know, I think these, I think the conversations that we have are important. I think another level, even in terms of Asian mixedness is, and uh, primarily with, I only hear women's, of mixed Asian women say this versus or Asian women actually in general say this even more so than Asian men is claiming person of color, woman of color, feeling comfortable doing that because it is so closely identified with blackness that they feel like maybe they don't have a place in it. Mm-hmm. Um, what that is very, that's centering the binary, right? Which mm-hmm. obviously we can't do that all the time. Some of us don't even come from the binary being centered, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think, uh, 
I think every every conversation leads to a, a change potentially in your identity, yeah. or at least an interrogation into into different aspects of your identity. And I expect to be doing this when I'm 99. Like you know, however mm -hmm. old I am, I, I expect to always be doing this. If mm -hmm. I end up moving to England versus moving to Japan will that shift the way that I identify in terms of my central identity and stuff like that too? Like, I think mm -hmm. these are the things and probably you experienced that when you did go to China, like in, in different ways of how it shifts your identity as an American versus your identity as a mixed Chinese culturally mixed person or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I mean, growing up, you know, we didn't use the term person of color or it wasn't like accessible and it wasn't, it didn't, I didn't, I don't know when I learned it. And now, of course, like, I know I'm a woman of color. I know I'm a person of color. I know this term applies to me. Um, and, you know, when I facilitate a group for women of color, I still have this, it, it took, you know, I have this like sense of like, am I the right person to facilitate this group? Mm. Right. Um, and, but there were not a lot of, there weren't people stepping forward to hold workshops for women of color. Mm -hmm. um, and the feedback I got was like, yes, we need this. We need this. Mm -hmm. And so I, I feel like I'm still tentatively holding space in some ways. Like I'm, I'm confident in my role as a facilitator, mm -hmm. but I still, um, you know, I still know that like for black women in particular, um, like I might not be the right person to hold that sure. space for them, you know? Yeah, sure. There's definitely something like that. At the same time, I would say that that doesn't mean you're not a right person to hold a space right. for people of color. You're right. just one of a type of exactly. person of color to hold a space for people of color, right? Right. And nine times out of ten, well, at least less so now, that, but before when we would have these uh, diversity inclusion type of events, they were almost always, and I guess they still can be sometimes, done by white women who are mm -hmm. trying maybe or they're trying to see their identity um, centralized a, a little bit more and including other people that they feel are marginalized so yeah there's just as much of an important need for a person who comes into your um, your spaces and saying oh my gosh it's another Chinese American mixed person you know and they feel like they get to see themselves in that and that mm -hmm. might ground their person of color identity a little bit stronger than they were experiencing before. So like, yeah, yeah I think it's just as important. And who's to say that a, a black woman of color doesn't see, doesn't get something out of your thing either, a different mm -hmm. perspective than if another white person, you know, had done that, or even a black person who has a different identity, like maybe they grew up similarly to you. And so right. that's why it speaks to them more. Like I said, I think there's just room for it all. Like there's literally room for it all. Yeah. And the only wrong way to do it in my eyes is if there's legitimately like a white person who grew up in whiteness and is surrounded by whiteness, took a class of diversity and decided to do something in diversity. Mm -hmm. You're not the right person for this job. You're mm -hmm. not experiencing it the way other people are. Um, yeah. You know, so in that case, that would be the one place in which I would be like, yeah, no, probably not. But right for all of the rest of us who exist like this, you know, in this um, intersectional identity, I think there there's a room for it and across the board. Yeah. Um, 
But we are coming uh, towards the end, and this has been a great conversation. I'm so excited to finally get a chance to sit down and and talk with you, and I'm excited uh, to see post. You know what's actually really weird, too, is Uh I've seen posts about your book pop up in my Japanese-American group that has nothing to do with podcasting, that has nothing to do with mixness. It's entirely just a Japanese-American group I participate in. And it was posted with the thing, not Japanese-American, but similar, you know, Mm. discovered this book or whatever. And I, I just was like, I like that was just like two words collide colliding. So like had nothing to do mm-hmm. with mixness, it had nothing to do with me even as a gateway. It was just another person in that group. And I was like, that that's pretty impressive. Especially well, for me it was because it was a Japanese group that that said like this is a Chinese mixed story, but mm-hmm. it has place here in, in this mm-hmm. thing. And I so I was excited about seeing it. Mm-hmm. Um so I'm excited about awesome. seeing that grow and and having your book being added to the amount of stories and memoirs that we get access to, um, which I think is important. So I thank you for doing that for us. But before we get out of here, I like to ask all of my guests what they love most about being mixed. What is that for you? Mm, I think what I love the most is how it does push me to have these conversations with myself and others about paradox and contradiction and really embrace that on this intrinsic level of like instead of an academic level of what does both and mean like I really get it you know and it really pushes my thinking um into this place where I feel like some of my early studies in Taoism um are now merging (laughs) with my thoughts around the binary and you know, who is white versus who is a person of color. So I, I love that. Nice. Um, and then I also want to just um, let people know that I will be doing another um, writing class for mixed race people starting in April, late mm-hmm. April. Um, so they can go to my website and learn about that, but it's through the Hugo house, um, which is a nonprofit for writers here in Seattle. But it'll be on zoom. So I love now I, what I do love is like being able to hold these spaces and like have that experience of a student saying like, I didn't realize that I needed this or I've Mm -hmm. never had this before. And what a gift, you know, to be able to offer something like that. Yeah. That I didn't have before too. Yeah. And I think a lot of content creation is about creating what you didn't have I, I think almost every content creator might say something like that um this was the story I needed no one was telling it so I guess I have to tell it yeah I think that's important yeah um, that's awesome yeah uh, so we'll we'll share details about how to get access to the writing workshop and how to access the book there'll be a link on militantly mixed website uh to get the book as well why don't you tell people how to find you though um so on Instagram or Facebook, I'm Anne Liu Keller, and that's also my website. So it's A N N E L I U K E L L O R dot com. All right. Well, thank you again for thank sharing. Thank you, Charmaine. It was so nice, nice to meet <laughs> you and talk to you. I wish we could just keep talking. <laughs> I will keep talking. Militantly Mix is a main hustle media podcast produced and hosted by me, Charmaine Fury. Music is by David Bogan, the one you can follow us on social media on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Militantly Mixed. 
If you'd like to become a sponsor of Militantly Mixed, please go to patreon.com slash militantly mixed for monthly sponsorship or paypal.me slash militantly mixed for a one-time only donation. And if you like what you hear on Militantly Mixed, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to be your mixed-ass self. Main Hustle Media. Turn your side hustle into your main hustle.